Good morning. Let's pray. Father, as we gather here today, may we ponder the cross and reflect during the preaching of the word how you are both just and justifier of the church. May we marvel that you would take undeserving people and clothe us in the righteousness of your son, Jesus. May we be encouraged by your word today and leave here renewed, relieved, and refreshed by the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Chris Anderson, in his hymn entitled, His Robes for Mine, wrote the following. His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, tis done. Sin's wage is paid, propitiation won. There are many Christians, perhaps even some here today, who carry upon themselves the burden of guilt and sin. Who may carry upon themselves a sense of guilt and despair from sin's past, and even since present. I'm not speaking of those who merely profess to be Christians, but those who have truly been converted, saved by grace through faith, who have repented of their sin, who have become new creations in Christ, but still struggle and often ask, how could God love someone like me? I've done some really terrible things in my lifetime. I've sinned greatly. How could God love me? In my many years in Christian ministry, I've listened to genuine Christians struggle with the guilt of sin. They've come to be despairing. I've listened to them as they've wept over the fact that they've betrayed their loved ones by stealing from them to support their addictions. Young men and even older men who have been overwhelmed with guilt because they've fallen into temptation and have gratified the lust of their flesh through pornography. Young women who are starving themselves to death and even young men because they feel their bodies are not attractive in a culture where body image is everything. Women who thought that having an abortion was the right thing to do in order to continue their schooling or to have a successful career only to find that the act has brought about much pain, silent suffering, and inner turmoil. Young people cutting themselves as a way to cope with something very tragic and dark that has happened in their lives. Christians feeling hopeless and helpless and despairing. The title of today's message is Jesus, God's Wrath-Absorbing Sacrifice. So turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 John. The epistle of 1 John was written by John the Apostle. Scholars throughout the ages have called John the Apostle of Love. He writes the letter because he's extremely concerned for the church and the enticements they face from the world. He also writes them because of the growing dangers of false teachings that were beginning to infiltrate the church. He recognized that the false teachers and their teachings were a supreme danger threatening the very life of the Christian community. And one thing you'll notice about John when reading his epistle is that 
He has or he had an incredible love for the church. An incredible desire and a God-given responsibility to protect the church from harm. Harm that would come from both within and harm that would come from without. He knew Christ died for his church and he himself would be willing to lay his own life down to serve the saints. As a matter of fact, John sees himself as a spiritual father and the recipients of his letters as his spiritual children. Which brings us to today's text, which briefly shows us that a pastor's heart should be that of love and care toward his congregation. And even more so, the father's heart is one of love and care toward his church. So let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle John writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John has written in previous chapter that everyone has sinned and because of that, all bear the guilt of sin and that the universal heart of man and woman is depraved. John starts off his section of his letter by addressing the church as, quote, my little children, my little children. This is an endearing or a relational appeal that he is as he is addressing the church. He's addressing a group of people that he not only feels personally responsible for, but he cares for them deeply. When someone is called by God and has hands laid upon him by his elders to serve in the role of an overseer, he should love the people he is called to serve. Pastoral ministry is one of care and self-sacrifice. Pastoral ministry isn't just about preaching or writing books or articles or studying theology. Those are good things. But pastors are called to be practitioners not pulpiteers. John was not a pulpiteer, someone who just wants to preach without regard of the burdens of the people he's preaching to. He was not someone who just wanted to be seen and known for his lofty words and his intellect. And when John calls them my little children, he's not being patronizing. He's not being condescending. He's not in any way speaking lesser of them in regards to value compared to himself. My little children is one of fatherly, heartfelt concern for vulnerable people. And what's interesting is he uses this phrase seven times in his epistle. Pastors are to be concerned for their vulnerable people not concerned only due to a sense of duty to their calling as pastors, but because they love the people that they have been called to serve as leaders. And he says to his little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. This is meant to be instructional. What John has written in his letter was to teach us on what is permissible to God 
and what is sinful to God. So what are these things that John is speaking of here? Well, let's look back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, he writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and the word is not in us. So John is very clear to the church that every human being in his or her lifetime will sin. Genesis 6, 5 states, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Romans 3.10 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But there is one who has never sinned. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we were to say that we do not sin, we would be lying. And if we were to say that we do not sin, we would be calling God a liar. Because his word says that we do. So John is stating here in chapter 2, verse 1, he's giving the church an exhortation here. He's exhorting them to avoid sin. And God is exhorting us to avoid sin. He's saying, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. Well, what is sin? I think we can find the answer to that question in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. John writes, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Grudem in Systematic Theology defines sin as Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. So, man's refusal to submit to God's law, that is God's word, is sinning. So when God's word says, do not steal, and we take our fellow student's pencil from his desk without asking, and we don't give it back, that is sinning. When God's word says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, and we do not obey, that is sinning. When God says that we shouldn't murder, and we willfully and maliciously take the life of another, born or unborn, that is is sin. When God says not to be a gossip or a whisperer, and we do, 
That is sin. Fathers, when God says that it is our responsibility to bring up our children in the instruction of the Lord, and we do not do that, that is sin. Sin is serious, and it should not be taken lightly. Sin grieves God. The scripture even says that sin angers God. It insults the sufferings of Christ. It suggests that we have the nature of the devil rather than God. May we not be lenient in our attitudes towards sin. But may I also clarify, whereas acts of sin are surely possible for Christians, habitual sin, meaning one living in a constant state of lawlessness without any regard to the word of God and where there is no Holy Spirit conviction of sin, that person is not a genuine Christian. That person has not been converted to Christ and will not spend eternity with him, but will be cast into hell where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, 8, Paul writes, but for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If you are here today, And you've never renounced your sin. You've never cried to God for mercy on you because you were a sinner. Would you please do that now? Today is the acceptable time for salvation. Continual rebellion against God and his word means that you're hostile to God. It means that you are his enemy. But if you were to cry out to him today and ask him to be merciful to you, if you were to acknowledge that you are a lawbreaker, you have broken every one of his commands, if you were to turn to the risen Christ and repent of your sins, you will be forgiven. You will no longer be considered a hostile, but you will be adopted as a son or a daughter into his family. Please, I implore you, if you've never turned to Christ and repented, do so. Because the wages of sin is death. So John says, I'm writing these things that you may not sin. But if anyone does. What John is conveying here is that there is a strong probability of an actual occurrence of sin among the believer in Christ. We Christians will sin. We're not sinless. But nor do we habitually sin. Jameson Fawcett Brown says, John is speaking of a believer's occasional sins of infirmity through Satan's fraud and malice. We will, Christian, miss the mark, and we should take it seriously. The only difference now is that whereas we were once slaves to sin, habitually sinning, having no regard for God or his law, sin was our lifestyle, Sin now no longer has any mastery over us. 
Paul wrote to the Romans and he said in 622, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. We as Christians do not have to sin. We have the Holy Spirit in us who enables us not to sin. But we do have what is called indwelling sin, meaning that sin hangs on in our humanness and we are conscious of its presence and the power of it. There is a war within the Christian. And as Christians, we despise that indwelling sin. We hate it. We loathe it. But we don't embrace it. We don't accept it as permissible. And if I can encourage you in this, when that indwelling sin rears its ugly head and if you succumb to it, do not despair. There is hope for you. There is hope for me. John writes in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, the Bible says. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because look at verse 2. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is the good news for you, Christian. This is the good news for me. God the Father is viewed here as the judge of all people. He is seated at the heavenly bench and is judging all people according to the perfection of his holy law. And no human being can live up to the perfection of his law. As Christians, we must view the reality of divine justice with great seriousness and respect since God has the power and the authority to condemn to hell every sinner that has ever lived. 1 Peter 1.17 And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. How are we to conduct ourselves? With fear of the Holy One. Reverence of the Holy One. Acts 17.31 Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man, that being Jesus Christ, whom He has appointed. God will judge. For the wrongdoer, Colossians 3.25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. But for the Christian, there is an advocate. The word advocate means helper. One who comes alongside in time of need. My sister is here. This is the first time she's ever heard me preach. And I've been preaching for over 20 years. But she's an advocate. She's a nurse. She's an oncology nurse. But she's also a United States Navy veteran. And she served in the Navy for, Navy for over 20 years. 
and retired as a senior chief. But she's an advocate for veterans who need health care. And I would think specifically maybe even oncology care who are cancer stricken. She comes alongside to help them to get the care they need. Jesus is our advocate. He comes alongside in time of need. And the term advocate here occurs five times in the New Testament. Four of those times it refers to the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate. The same word paraclete is also here what John uses. But here in 1 John, it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, the sinless, undefiled, spotless lamb. So we have a helper in our heart, the Holy Spirit, and a helper in heaven, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The Holy Spirit is the intercessor in our heart, according to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. And Jesus is our intercessor in heaven, Romans chapter 8, verse 35. So what does this righteous one in heaven do for us as our advocate? Well, we sang this morning, when sin rises up, I fall to my knees. Storms may rage on, but this is my peace. I know my Savior pleads for me. If I may illustrate, Christ is our attorney standing before the Father. And He brings forth the evidence before the righteous judge. And He pleads on our behalf in heaven. And He lays, if you will, photographic exhibits of Good Friday on the bench. The crown of thorns, the whip, the mocking soldiers, the nails, the agonies of Calvary, the sufferings that He endured on the cross. And He also, as an exhibit, shows the final cry of victory. It is finished. He intercedes for us before the supreme judge of the universe who judges according to the absolute perfection of his law as he is the author, interpreter, and executor of his law. For the Christian, Jesus is our advocate because he fully understands our human weakness since he came to this earth as a fully human son of God. Hebrews chapter 4, 14 and 15 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way, every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. First Timothy 2.5, Paul writes to Timothy and he says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Only those who have confessed their guilt and their desperate need to receive him as Savior and Lord will be represented by him. He is our intercessor. He is our advocate. What a savior. What a God. To know that when I sin and I fall on my face and ask for mercy, my Jesus is there interceding for me. 
advocating for me to the Father, saying, remember Good Friday, Dad. Remember what I did for for your son, John. How can he be our advocate? How can he be our representative before the Father? 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross satisfied the demand of God's justice therefore appeasing his holy wrath against believers' sins. John writes in 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God has made a way to remove his own wrath against sinners. God was not content with leaving us under his wrath. And Jesus, by his bloody sacrifice on the cross, satisfied God's justice and turned away his righteous anger from us. The punishment that we should have had upon ourselves was poured out on Jesus. The judgment that should have been experienced by you and me was experienced by Jesus. Jesus was God's wrath-absorbing sacrifice. God's purpose in crushing His Son was so that we could be reconciled to Him. Because God loves His creation. He loves those who have been created in His image and likeness. Humanity. The work of atonement accomplished by Christ on the cross is where God's holiness and God's love meet. Where God's judgment and God's mercy kiss. It pleased the Father to crush His Son and to put Him to grief as Isaiah the prophet prophesied. And it pleased the Father to highly exalt Jesus and bestow upon Him the name that is above every name so that every tongue in heaven and on earth will bow. At the cross... God's justice was satisfied. The death of Christ was our vindication. What better news for the Christian is there than that? That Christ has endured God's wrath in our place so that our sins are no longer counted against us. That, brothers and sisters, is what propitiation means. Wrath-absorbing sacrifice. And so we have an advocate in heaven, Jesus, 
who pleads our case not on the basis of our perfection, because we are not perfect, but on the basis of his propitiation. You see, God's aim through the Apostle John is that we not sin as Christians. That we not make light of it either. His strategy to free us from sin is that unique biblical combination of warning and consolation, threat and promise, caution and encouragement. But we need to hear, brothers and sisters, Christians, we need to hear of the danger of living in sin, it's important. We don't minimize sin. Do we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means, Paul wrote. So we need to hear of the danger of living in sin, but we also need to hear the unspeakable good news that Jesus is our advocate and he has removed the wrath of God from those who trust in him and him alone for salvation. So when you start despairing over sin, remember the wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Remember who is pleading for you. Remember who your advocate is in that moment. That consolation guards us against deep despair and instills hope and courage in us. Christian, you are no longer God's objects of wrath but recipients of grace through Christ's propitiation. And John continues in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think we need to look at this. John does not mean that all of God's wrath against every person in the world has been propitiated by Christ, if that were the case, then every person who ever lived would be saved. The Gospel of John 3.36 says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever trusts in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. So we see here that not everyone is going to heaven. That would be the heresy of universalism. What this means could be best described possibly in Caiaphas' prediction as found in John 11.52. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, Israel, and not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, the Gentiles. Or Jesus' own words when he stated in John 10, 15, and 16, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. So there are children of God or sheep scattered throughout the world. The blood of Christ ransomed people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. But not everybody. But as the scripture says in Mark chapter 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He did not absorb God, he did not absorb God's wrath for everybody. He laid his life down for his sheep. And his sheep are scattered throughout the world in every tongue and tribe and nation. Christ's work on the cross atoned for those scattered throughout the world who would be sovereignly drawn by God to repent and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Those are who Jesus died for. Worship team, if you would come up. So what does this mean for Christians? This means that we have something very important to say and something very important to do. Christians, you and I are called by God to go and to proclaim that Jesus is the only way to heaven. We are to proclaim that it is only through Him and His being that wrath-absorbing sacrifice that one would be spared eternal punishment. We are to proclaim that Jesus Christ is God, that He was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, and rose from the dead. We are to proclaim that He commands all people everywhere from every tribe, every nation, every tongue to repent of their sin and to entrust their lives to Him in order to have eternal life with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, we don't know who God's elect is out there. But we do know that we are to go to the inhabitants of this world, proclaim the gospel to them, that they may be blessed with salvific faith and repentance and enjoy the forgiveness of sin through Christ and only through Christ and Him alone. The message of 1 John 2, 1 and 2 is don't sin. Christian, don't sin. Sin is serious. It is damaging. It is destructive. But if you do sin, don't despair. Because Christ, your attorney, is the son of the judge of the universe. Yes, you may have done some terrible things in your lifetime and grieved the Lord. We all have. But Christ is our defender. 
And his case is not based on the sins that we have done, but what he has done for us. He absorbed our punishment on the cross. And there is therefore now no condemnation for you, Christian, and for me, because we are in Christ Jesus. His robes for mine, what cause have I for dread? God's daunting law, Christ mastered in my stead. Faultless I stand with righteous works, not mine, saved by my Lord's vicarious death and life. His robes for mine, God's justice is appeased. Jesus is crushed, and thus the Father's pleased. Christ drank God's wrath on sin, then cried, tis done. Sin's wage is paid, propitiation won. The Apostle John begins to close this chapter, chapter 2, with verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. And I hope, church, that you are encouraged this morning by the truth of the gospel, that Christ is our advocate, that Christ is the righteous one who has paid for our sins, and that you will find grace and hope to abide in him. What a simple yet profound truth and encouragement that is. Abide in him. For he has paid for your sins and he has been risen from the dead and you will be with him. You can be assured of that if you have faith in Christ. May you abide in him this week and find strength from the well of grace to face the many trials that may come your way. Go in grace, church, and be encouraged. Amen.